Is digital technology creating an age of anxiety in our modern times? Have there been other ages of anxiety? In this episode of The Anxiety Advantage, we take a step back for a long and broad view of anxiety in the context of the last 100 years and the evolution of technology from a literary and philosophical perspective. This is The Anxiety Advantage, the podcast that asks, how can we thrive in an age of anxiety? I'm Yang Mei Ui, and I'm a writer and podcaster. Today, I'm joined by James Wood, whom some of you may know by his author name, J.W. Wood. James edits a financial technologies media outlet by day and is a published novelist and short story writer by night. His pieces have appeared in many magazines and newspapers, including The Times Literary Supplement, The London Magazine, and The Daily Telegraph. He is currently working on a collaborative project about the effect of technology on humanity with Swiss artist Cyril Saurer, which is being exhibited in Western Canada, Montreal, and Geneva. Later this year, his satirical novella, By Any Other Name, will be published by Terra House Press in the U.S., James Wood, otherwise known as J.W. Wood to your readers, thank you so much for coming on to the Anxiety Advantage podcast. So the Anxiety Advantage podcast, uh, my tagline is thriving in an age of anxiety. So this episode is really just to have a look at are we living in an age of anxiety? Are there different ages of anxiety? And how do we find a way to thrive in our specific age of anxiety? So let's start by having a look at our current modern life generally. What are your thoughts about anxiety in our current age, James Wood? So thanks. I I feel that the, the technology's pervasive influence in modern society is certainly one of the biggest drivers of anxiety today. And I think if one looks back even from the time in the 16th century, I believe, when the first mechanical clocks were introduced, there has been an increasing and increasingly far, I should say increasing in rapidity, focus on getting things done and the need to be present, which has only increased if we look at technological innovations such as the telegraph in the 19th century, the telephone, the radio in the 1930s, 1926, I believe, and then onwards, television, and now, of course, the internet. We've seen an increasing range of pressures on everything from people's time to their self-image. And I think it's become acute to in a way that perhaps people could not have imagined, let's say, 150 years ago. So these technologies were and are meant to help us, and that is certainly the intention of the people who invented them. And um, But at the same time, as we're finding oh, isn't it fantastic that we can write an email and it gets there quickly? And as a lawyer, I experienced that rapidity and efficiency where 
previously, I came of age in the days of typewriters, where my poor secretary had to retype letters time and time again, as I corrected them. And it took ages for something to be sent out. And then it arrived at my counterpart's desk a few days later, they would take their time to reply. So transactions took a week to two weeks just in that little exchange. Whereas fantastic. I can just type it out. Boom, off it goes. It's off my desk. The transaction moves more swiftly. So that's a positive. But at the same time, then emails come flooding in and I've got to, I've got to somehow manage my workload and get it all back out there. So Absolutely. it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It is. And having been in disputes with a publisher where I was represented by a lawyer and the publisher was represented by a lawyer, it almost became like a tennis match where you could see these emails going backward and forward in the space of a single day, which was quite incredible. But having said that, I mean, one thing I would just question is whether or not, and indeed most recently, the inventors of certain technologies have always had our best interests at heart. So if you look at the extent to which we have now, or our data has now become the product for a number of technology companies, let's say, I think that's a new and not necessarily welcome at all development in the last 30 years with the development of data manipulation techniques. And of course, the internet, as we've mentioned, I think it's taken a darker turn. And I think this is reflected in the way a lot of people feel if you look at rates of mental illness and so on. Interestingly, as I think I've said in print before, and I'll be talking about in Montreal next week at lecture, French philosophers in particular and some Romanians foresaw this happening as early as the 1940s. As television and radio developed, they foresaw that we would become increasingly the object of technology rather than its master. And that seems to me to be the most difficult development of the last 30 years. So how does that impact on us? What can we do about it? Is it something that is truly sinister? How does it affect little old me? Here I am pushing along. We're online. I'm on Facebook. It's all kind of fun. The data collection is at a very high level. I'm just a little blip amongst millions of little, little blips in their data. And to some extent, there is the argument that if we collect all this data, we can perhaps anticipate pandemics or flu or whatever it is, because people, you can see that people are Googling headaches and streaming nose and suddenly there's a spike. So this helps people, scientists anticipate something's about to happen. So that's the one side of it. But what is the darker side? So I think the darker side is being the object of marketing techniques. I mean, obviously, we all know this from the Cambridge Analytica scandal and Facebook and a variety of political scandals, real and imagined. And I think the imagination is a separate side of this that have happened in the last few years. I mean, one bittersweet, not so funny, perhaps, example of this is the dating sites that get in touch with people who've been Googling their ex-girlfriends or boyfriends or what have you, their ex-partners, and, you know, introducing them to sort of flirting and cheating and so on and so forth, that they might not, you know, it may have been some sort of idle fantasy or curiosity. And once the search engines pick up on this, they're actually kind of pushing, leading these people down the primrose path, if you like, you know, to, to use the, a, a, a tired religious metaphor. But I think there are a wide range of others, you know, the marketing being 
not necessarily appropriate or upsetting to some people. So, you know, glibly assuming that if you're in your 50s, you must be interested in T-shirts that say I'm an old man or woman or what have you, you know. So, so there's a wide range of ways in which I think it almost constricts us. And then I think there's the imaginative element, which is where people run away with or can run away, you know, what's what they're seeing and thinking that they're living in a panopticon, whereas in fact, there are things to go back to your previous point that we can do to mitigate this stuff. I think that's a very good point. On a very light note, I turned 50 some time ago and on Facebook, I suddenly got all these ads, plan your funeral. And I thought, well, I'm not quite ready for that. So I actually changed my age on Facebook to, to a younger age. And then I got much more, well, sensible ads, but then one gets ads anyway. So that's actually a separate question around ads making us feel anxious. And perhaps we can touch on that. So what do you think, you know, so some people are saying, oh, I'm off Facebook, but they are on Sam, which is owned by the same company. I'm on Instagram. That's much better, but actually that's also owned by the same company, whatever platform you're on. Is it really possible to completely go off grid in our current day and age? Or is it about becoming more psychologically, mentally and resilient and also more tech savvy without becoming completely paranoid and seeing phantoms, fictitious monsters that are not there, that sometimes, again, the internet can in itself ball. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two different sides there. In terms of the technological capacity, it absolutely is possible. And I remember doing some work with Glenn, Glenn Greenwald five or six years ago. And it was just a two-day conference. And he said to me in the green room, you know, before we went on, buy a black phone, which, by which he means a phone that's, that encrypts its signals, and buy a black computer that also encrypts the signals. And then, of course, there's ProtonMail, there's all kinds of different, and there's also Signal as a messaging app. So there are different things you can do where the promise is that they don't manipulate your data. However, I will mention Apple as a company that claims not to have uh, manipulated data, but in fact actually does use take user data for its own benefit. So, so you know, I think you can do it, but it's uh, as you know, given that my partner also does this stuff, I know how much work it is to keep your information private. I think the other way is very simply to accept what's going on. And a character in a, a novel I've been writing actually decides to open a small print-based literary magazine in the prairies of Canada on the basis that no one would ever read it anyway and uses it for secret messaging to her colleagues in a cell because, you know, no one's going to bother reading that. So actually it's a form of privacy. And I think that kind of comes back in a way to certain parts of literary discourse is that it is such a tiny community it's almost like, you know, you, it's one of the few spaces where one's free because, you know, like the, there's not a lot of commercial interest in it. I'm not talking about, you know, novels by massive publishers. I'm talking about, you know, small poetry magazines and stuff. So that's quite exciting. I suppose that's one way. But definitely your point about dealing with the anxiety is very well made and actually having some resilience and having some knowledge about what's happening with your data on the Internet. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. There's a very good website. I think is it called Snopes? where you can go and fact check or reality check anything that you see online on Facebook in particular about conspiracy theories or whether it's true or not, or mm -hmm. emails that come in that some fantastic claim or try and get money off you. If you go to, I, I think that is still running and there will 
presumably the other also websites where you can we can check this and I think not believing everything you read online. However, that then go, takes us down the conspiracy theorists where they don't believe that anything that you read in mainstream media is true. So you then end up in some strange rabbit hole, Alice through the looking glass. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's absolutely correct. And since you mentioned Snopes, I have to say that it has quite a scientistic techno bias. So for instance, Einstein absolutely did and my was in my opinion a deist and if you read the walter isaacson biography you know there's several instances where he you know einstein is having conversations with god in german as he tries to work out a problem and so on but you know snopes would tell you that einstein was not and was it was an atheist and all this kind of stuff so so i think you know even with snopes there there are areas in which one what and similar sources one has to be careful your wider point about conspiracy theory what it makes me think of is the uh, fiction of philip k dick where you know there's this huge uncertainty about what is real and what can be believed. And I, I've been reading a lot of Dick in the last six months. I think I've read, you know, six or seven novels of his and short stories. And it's pretty clear he was in a way a prophet, you know, of what we have today, where there's so much information, there's so many different perspectives, it's very hard to know what's real. I've just been reflecting as you were speaking about even Snopes has its biases. And one of the symptoms, if you like, of social media, my sense is that particularly with Twitter, you've only got a certain number of characters. You can't have a long discourse. So it is actually a pretty, pretty hard sledgehammer. So it's things on social media and our debates inspired by this way of discourse seems to be black or white. Everything is certain, absolutely this or absolutely that. And there doesn't seem to be room for, eh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, <laughs> which actually seems to me more more of a, our real experience of, re, uh, of life and that it is possible to hold two feelings and two opinions at the same time. And particularly your example of Einstein, he are, he's our icon as the ultimate scientist, but he also believed in God. And in his, for his reality, that is, that works. So why is it that we feel the need for certainty? I think that's a very interesting question. And I think that we have longed for certainty throughout the ages. I think that is a profound question. I've written about this. Uh, the first collect, the first piece in my selected poems is about exactly that, that, you know, we long for certainty in the same way the ancients did. And I think, you know, codified belief, belief systems to a certain extent gave us that certainty. And I think we feel the lack of those belief systems in modern Western society, for many of us do, quite profoundly. And it's interesting that a lot of the critics who prefigured the situation we are in now, I mentioned the Romanian and French philosophers, were profoundly religious individuals who saw the effect that, I suppose on the one hand, I'm going to use a shorthand term which may not be correct, let's say, the absence of moral structures rather than moral relativism and the advent of technology together in a pincer movement were going to bring us. And it's pretty much where we are today. But I think that's an excellent question. And, you know, and I would agree, we definitely, it's an enabling factor for the current age of anxiety. 
And I do feel that as a result, this black and white absolutist way of looking at the world and discourse means that it's actually quite difficult to have nuanced discussions that somebody will be offended on the left, somebody on the right, somebody at the top, somebody at the bottom, whichever dichotomy you look at, there will be an anger that perhaps comes out of anxiety is taking offence, a sense of, oh, I don't like this person's worldview because it has undermined my worldview, so I'm going to attack it and clobber it so that my worldview becomes the only worldview. That's right. It's almost like it's almost kind of boxing. It's almost like this sort of ultra-violent approach to to debate. And in fact, I, I mean, without wanting to be pompously elusive, I mean, it's something you, you make me think of Anthony Burgess toward writing towards the end of his career, who again, for uh, if, even if you think as early as A Clockwork Orange, he foresaw that high culture would become a form of rebellion, right? So where everybody is knocking lumps out of each other, or there's a movie somewhat less pompously called Idiocracy from 1996 which is absolutely brilliant because it just takes the state of then current debate and blows it up into this balloon whereby it's almost become a parody of itself and people are literally having you know wrestling fights about political issues and stuff like this okay so so i mean you can see how the one interesting question because we're talking about how to deal with anxiety in the modern era is the rise of retreats, the rise of quietness and solitude as almost a purchasable commodity, which I think is interesting in itself, right? Yes, it's interesting. The word retreat strikes me as, well, is the answer to facing anxiety retreat and solitude and disengaging from the world, which seems rather defeatist to me. And also then we're not, we're, we're hiding away. My sense is that retreats and solitude need to be a, a space where we can go to recharge our batteries, to reflect, to take time to reflect, to move away from I'm right, you're wrong, and to allow a space, a spaciousness for the complexities of any situation to float up and be in that space and not be afraid of the complexity, and then to come back out into the world, into our lives, into our relationships, into work, into family, and engage with perhaps a a deeper sense of self-awareness and of ourselves and of the world. I read somewhere the other day that resilience is about self-awareness and changing ourselves and responding through ourselves rather than trying to control the outside world and other people. So I'm, if I'm resilient, it's my ability, and I use my as a sort of narrator rather than me, me, because I'm not particularly special. But if I'm trying to be resilient, then it's about me going, oh, now I've reacted like this to what he said and what he did. Let me just think about that. How does, why am I doing that? And how can I, um, be whole and strong and confident without actually beating this person down. I want to change him. That's my instinct. I want to change the situation, change him. But actually, it's my feeling and I have a responsibility for my own feeling. Yes. And the crucial element, which I would add to that, which I believe, I don't want to use technology as catch-all, but a variety of factors have robbed us of today, is time. 
and the perception that we have the time, not just to retreat, but even to reflect and think twice. Because going back to something else you spoke about earlier, this constant back and forth and replies on social media and Twitter and what have you, is an instance of, you know, just people not taking the time to reflect. And I was once, for various reasons, when I was interviewing them, privy to a discussion between a very highly placed central banker and the chief executives of two banks. And to see, if you looked at that email thread, there were literally seconds between their responses to each other when they were making decisions about public policy issues or having a discussion about public policy issues that, you know, cost tens of millions of pounds. And either there cannot have been a great deal of room for reflect in that conversation. And I think this pressure to always respond, to always be available is an, is a strong disincentive to the kind of reflective analysis that you're talking about. Yes, and I think I'm certainly not perfect in that regard. As a young lawyer, when email came in, and actually this started in the good old days of letters, a lawyer on the other side would send me a letter refuting all the points that I've made. And I go, how dare he or she? I'm right there wrong and I'll write this letter. And what I learned from a very wise senior lawyer is, okay, write it, get it off your chest. Don't Mm. send it. And so I try to do that with my emails as well. I don't put in the addressee in the, do the subject line. I write the email in the heat and you can just see the steam coming off my laptop. Mm. Pause. I'll come back to it a little bit later, change things. And it's much more, you know, further to your letter or whatever. I do not agree with what you say. And this is sort of, you know, much calmer. And if you, and in fact, I think this question of time, is it that we've just convinced ourselves that we have no time? And that, oh, it has to all be done. Really? How urgent is anything really? Is five minutes going to make a difference? Is 10 minutes going to make a difference? Is an hour, two hours? Actually, could it wait till the next day? So is it something about managing our own sense of urgency and perhaps importance in order to give ourselves that time, give back, take back that time from our own selves? Mm. Well, that's a very good question. I think the short answer is yes, it is. But on the other hand, if we look at, let's say, health monitors, these watches you can buy, which as you can see is absent from my wrist, but you know, where they'll say, you know, you haven't completed your profile yet, or, you know, you've walked more steps than you walked last week, keep it going, or, you know, you're, you're drinking more water or you're drinking less water or whatever it is. There's this sense in which, you know, the machines almost encourage us towards that binary response. So it's either this or it's that, you know, click here if you want to share your address. Well, I'm not really sure. I would want to share it with some people and not others. Oh, we have a few options for that. Yeah, but I'm not even happy with your options. And this whole kind of, uh, for want of, you know, I'm going to call it kind of wholeness or organic approach to everything has been slowly eroded. And I think you and I have really lived through that process in our lifetimes where, you know, as children, we can remember when, you know, computers lived in rooms and were rarely seen and did useful things like, you know, payroll or whatever it was. So, you know, and now they're really omnipresent. And, you know, you look at Google Nest and Alex Alexa or whatever it is, which, you know, we won't, we refuse to have anywhere near our household is, is the kind of final example of that where literally everything you say can be interpreted and responded to. And we, you know, we, that's without even touching on 
how we learn, what we learn, and why anyone would bother with knowledge today, but if they can just get it off the internet and what, you know, so, so what's the use of, what's the use of knowing things today? I think it's profoundly different to how it was when we were children. There's a myriad of points there. I just want to conf- to fess up that I have a Fitbit and I have she who cannot be named because if I name her, she'll go off <laughs> because I find I like having music all over the place and there is a convenience, but I do get very frustrated. And I do know someone else who's got one of these watches. And one evening, she was, it was my cousin visiting me and I heard these footsteps upstairs and it turned out that she hadn't quite got to 10,000 steps and she was marching around the room. And that is, you know, a light-hearted example. But if we do become drones to this funneling, I think that's the thing you describe, you know, click here, the next page is, well, none of these options, it's like doing a multiple choice. I've hated those. And as an English lit grad, I like to like write long, you know, waffly essays, and there's no space for that. And also quite alarmingly, speaking of English lit degrees, I hear that a university has actually cancelled its English literature degree, which is very, very disturbing. Right, I agree, it is. And I also agree with you that the about the point about your cousin in the steps, however kind of pleasant and, you know, kind of lighthearted it may be, it really is a great example of what you're talking, what we're talking about here. And, you know, there is a quantifiable difference between walking six miles over rough terrain to get your 10,000 steps with 40 pound thing on your bag to kind of pottering about the garden or whatever. And, you know, my view is it's all fine and it doesn't matter anyway, you know. And I think that it has a profound effect on what it means to be human when we start judging ourselves by these metrics, you know, by, by, by some sort of, I mean, I understand that in fact, a bit like the five fruits and vegetables a day, in fact, we ought to be eating 10 portions of fruit and vegetables a day, but no one tells you that because it's such an unattainable figure that no one would do it. Similarly, we're really supposed to walk 15,000 steps a day, but nobody tells you that because it's such a high number of people wouldn't do it kind of thing. So, so, you know, these are arbitrarily imposed things that I think just heighten people's anxiety. Oh no, my heart rate's up, my heart rate's down, I've had too much coffee, I, whatever, you know, uh, and it really takes us away from some of those essentials that you and I have had a lot of exposure to in the early part of our lives through our degrees and our reading. You know, I think, it, you know, it, there's not a lot of poetry in I've walked 10,000 steps a day, or perhaps there is. <laughs> and, but I think it goes back to the point about we need certainty. So I know I'm fit and healthy because my watch tells me I've done 10,000 steps and that these are the metrics. And mm. the metrics have a way of being black and white, of being certain. And it, again, it staves off anxiety. Well, I'm not really sure. Am I fit? Oh, no, but I am. Look. And he didn't. There's this whole thing of academia, and perhaps that's a whole new podcast episode around universities should be the place where we can have debate, nuanced debate at length over a period of time. And again, my sense, again, this is what I see in the news, is that the Twitterverse has made academia a place where you can't actually say certain things or you'll get shouted down or you get cancelled. And that is uh, quite uh, alarming for someone like me. I, I completely agree. And again, the extent to which that level of discourse is driven by anxiety, as well as adding to it, is, I think, a whole different debate, as you say. You know, what's driving people to 
if you we look at something like let's say Plato's Symposium or the dialogues or what have you, you know where everything is indisputably logical. Whether you agree with it or not, you can see how, you know, Plato's is a splendid, said Glaucon. And then, you know, we go on to look at the next proposition and all this kind of stuff. It's very different from a kind of screaming voice telling people they're racist or they're sexist or whatever, because of it's just two different interpretations of a situation. And in many ways, it's kind of pointless because it's circular. All it's doing is saying, I think this, you think that, I think this, you think that. And, you know, another interesting question about modernity is the to my mind, huge over-reliance on scientific evidence, which quite often turns out to be less reliable than one might hope. And there are very few of us who are qualified either in statistics or in specific scientific disciplines to adequately interpret that data to ourselves. And so the extent to which science has replaced the role of formalized belief systems. Uh, and this is something I'll be talking about in Montreal next week. Um, and the extent to which we have completely sidelined different forms of knowing that, you know, were prevalent throughout the entirety of human history and which since give or take 1750, but that's very arbitrary, you know, have fallen away in importance to the point where they are now almost ignored. Uh, the last thing I'll say on this subject is I think of, there's always a debate about was it Walter Benjamin or was it Theodore Adorno? I'm told it was Theodore Adorno, but other people say it's Benjamin, who said there can be no poetry after Auschwitz because of the extreme scientific horror that, that those events towards the end of the Second World War represented, the absolute mechanical destruction of human humanity. You could also say Nagasaki is, and, and Hiroshima are other examples of exactly the same thing, where it's the brutality of scientific approaches to destruction in the of humanity being faced with those that thereafter, for wh whether it was the Adorno or Benjamin, there was no sense in which we could express ourselves in certain ways because that was the monstrosity of science writ large. And I think it's quite profound, the effect that that had on the way that we think and the way we perceive the world. And we ignore that change today at our peril, in my opinion. Which brings us back to the several points which we've already touched on, the over-reliance on science and the cancelling of an English literature degree by one of the universities in the UK this week. Because... There is a belief that science is the truth, and it can give us a lot of truth, and it's, I'm not an anti-scientist. However, literature, poetry, novels, they also can show us an aspect of human truth, which science cannot. 100% right. And I think it's those other forms of knowing that one of the projects I'm working on at the moment with a, a Swiss visual artist, that's what we're seeking to, to shake up, if you like, through what we're doing and to question why those alternative forms of knowing no longer seen as valid. I can't avoid mentioning the work of some renegade um, biochemists, in particular Bruce Lipton, whose uh, book Biology and Belief I would recommend to everyone, where he looks at the effect of certain emotional events on biomarkers and shows that 
you know, since we're talking about it today, anxiety and extreme grief have an effect and trigger certain genomic markers. And I think that, you know, this is the kind of thing that isn't necessarily measurable, but Lipton tries to show how where there's a very negative. I mean, we all know it. People, the the expression "died of a broken heart," "died of grief," or what have you. I mean, I think it's a it's easy to dismiss that, but I think anyone who and again, my friends who are medics would say, you know, it happened, and therefore there's a clear sense in which we are potentially ignoring or trying to quantify the unquantifiable through our over-reliance on the scientific method. And that over-reliance is not something that Einstein, Newton, Faraday would have recognized. Darwin, you know, they would have, they, they were in a world, born into a world where there was more balance, which is interesting of itself. And my, again, what I've been, my response to your mention of Bruce Lipton's work is that in today's world, it becomes potential clickbait. Stop being anxious and you'll live forever. You can just see that headline. Or if you've got cancer, it's because you haven't processed your anxiety and somehow it's your fault. So, and I'm sure that's not what his book is about. So how do we approach something like this in a more nuanced way, in a more holistic way that is not about blaming the victim or just taking sound bites uh, off and actually look at it as part of the human condition? Well, again, an excellent and not a small question, but but without dodging it, I think that, you know, there does need to be an acknowledgement that of certain other forms of knowing. I think we need to be very careful when I say a rebalancing, because by no means am I advocating that anything should be retrograde. I think we have to acknowledge, as you say, I'm also not anti-scientific, and we have to acknowledge the enormous strides that the physical sciences, natural sciences have brought to the quality of human life in the last 150 years in particular, but perhaps also acknowledge that there needs to be alongside that a recognition of the importance of, let us say, community and human relationships, however that's expressed, to our quality of life. I think this is, in my opinion, very important for us at the moment with the conflict we see going on and with the risks that potentially exist in the world, I personally have come to understand those who, after serious conflicts, said that although they had survived, had in certain circumstances, they would have preferred not to have. And I think at the most profound level, you know, if we can't have community, if we can't have, we can't make the time either to have the discussion that we're having now or to listen to and contribute to that kind of discussion, then to me, it calls into question why we're alive, you know, and I think that we've got to recognize the importance of these kinds of things to the quality of life, whether it's literary creativity, music, community, cooking for ourselves. I think we do. I think, you know, we kind of know it's there, but then there's the next tweet or the next email to get to, or I haven't done my steps or whatever. And I think we just need to banish that stuff as nonsense and recognize that the important thing about being human is not weighing a bit more or a bit less or looking more like this person or whatever, and just saying, okay, no, you know, we're going to 
enjoy this moment in this way. And that may not be scientific and it may not have a rational basis, but we're going to celebrate it anyway. And I think also very much, and this is my clarion call, to read novels, to listen to music. The greats, Tolstoy, George Eliot, Bernardino Evaristo, those high quality, profound books that talk about what it is to be human and about the human condition and to listen to music from all over the world that moves you and touches you. That is as wonderful a medicine as uh, doing your steps. And and it's a a way of communicating with others in a sort of, I don't say spiritual, but metaphysical way when you're listening to music and sharing that experience as as much as tweeting. I just want to uh, take a little step back and look at the context of ages of anxiety. And so historically, I was thinking, well, what happened 100 years ago? Was that an age of anxiety? Are there ages of anxiety throughout human history? So that was 1922. That was just after the First World War, a very traumatic event across Europe. There were sufferers from PTSD, and there's some wonderful novels about that period by modern writers as well as writers, contemporary writers at the time. Millions were killed off by Spanish flu, which has a very dark resonance with our modern age, and so on. I'm going to stop talking now about 1922 and hand over to, to you, James, for, for your thoughts about what happened, you know, the state of the world 100 years ago. Well, a hundred years ago, of course, the other event that was going on the day that we are speaking to each other was the Irish Civil War, where hundreds of Irish people on the Irish combatants on the non-treaty and treaty parties were firing each other today in what is now O'Connell Street in Dublin and the post office and the four courts. So, you know, there was a, there was as much anxiety. And I think at the same time, let's not forget if we go back a hundred years, in my opinion, the origin of the species was still have being felt. The effect of that was still being felt. Of course, in 1919, I believe, you may know better than I, we had women's suffrage for the first time, which is great. And in 1922, I believe again, the first woman took her place in the House of Lords. So there was very profound change going on. And I think at that time, I would characterize it as the beginning of a period of uncoupling from those moral belief systems we spoke, we referred to earlier. In fact, there's a brilliant book by Morris Eckstein's called The Rites of Spring, which looks at the responses, it's slightly earlier, to Stravinsky's Rites of Spring, the first performance in Paris, and talks, that was 1913, and Eckstein's points out that the way it was staged was uncannily like soldiers wearing gas masks in the trenches of the First World War. And that after the performance, uh, as is kind of a case of documentary record, there was a riot in the streets outside the Opera in Paris. And it was, Eckstein speculates, the beginning of the end of bourgeois society around about the same time. Of course, you have Stefan Zweig writing his novels all about the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and how nothing had changed for 50 years. And suddenly you have this explosion of change. And it, you know, if we fast forward 100 years, I, to a certain extent, I think we're still feeling the, some of the effects of that today. The uncoupling is complete. You know, we do live in this almost anything goes, at any point is as valid as another. Let's rely on data, but we're not really sure where we're sourcing that data from all the time kind of way. So I think there was anxiety. I don't think it was acute as it is today. 
I would agree with you. There have been ages of anxiety throughout human history. I wonder whether any has been as acute as it is today. That's the, that would be my question. Looking back at 100 years ago, and you mentioned women's suffrage, there was also the breakdown of the class system to right. some extent because the, the, of the whole Downton Abbey effect of the upper classes, the lower classes knew their place and that went on for generations. And then suddenly there was this war where people could see the upper classes, the leaders were not really as great or all-knowing or all-powerful as was believed within that culture. And so the fluidity of class movement increased. And so the result of that, and so, so, so sorry to stay with that, so anxiety is around, oh, things are changing. I don't like this. And it's a feeling of discomfort. It's a feeling of things are not right. But as you process the anxiety, a hundred years of growth, human, psychological and emotional growth from that period and social growth, I suppose, thinking about the suffragettes. And here we are a hundred years uh, from that point of anxiety. Oh, women, they shouldn't be voting. They shouldn't be coming into our mm. upper class clubs. And now we have clubs of our own. We're voting. We're in parliament. We're, we're everywhere. Running countries. Uh, running countries, <laughs> taking charge, running podcasts, telling you what's what. Uh, and so that moment of crisis from, for the male dominant class at that point has, from that has emerged something very positive for society because of all the contributions of all the different minds of women, for human beings actually, coming to the form, being allowed to take their place in society. And similarly, the breakdown of the social classes, working class people, middle class people, you know, where, you know, we're just doing our thing. You know, you don't have to be upper crust to, to have a job in a good job or, or whatever it is. And again, that anxiety around class has borne fruit that we are all enjoying. So I wonder, we may not know now because we're in the throes of our age of anxiety, what positives might flow in a hundred years time from now. Well, and I think that is, an, again, an excellent point. And the hope that, and I will name him Jacques Ellul, the French philosopher who, is, who really has inspired my current project, puts out in his book, uh, the, techno the Technological, or as he calls it, Technology, sorry, I'm translating from French, The Gamble of the Century, is that we learn to almost accommodate technology into our lives where it is appropriate. And just to give you a wholly specious and kind of fun, because why not, way of looking at it, if we think about the Star Wars series, they have all these whiz-bang things, like they can fly in outer space and use laser weapons, and yet they still dress up as knights and eat gruel. And in a funny kind of way, you know, I think it's almost like some version of that is where one hopes we can get to, which is that this is an appropriate situation for me to be using technology and it will help me here, so I will use it. In another situation, such as talking to friends, for instance, where you and I are this far apart, then yes, it does help. But I think people ought to and have an obligation to go and see people and spend time with people face to face if they possibly can. And I think there shouldn't be any kind of technological mediation in that where we can avoid it. Your points raise another really important point for the future that I think we have to bear in mind, which is that I think we all have a moral duty to be optimistic. And I sometimes find that the anxiety gets to a point, both in terms of society and since we, you've asked me to talk about this as well, as an individual, it gets hard for all of us 
and we have a moral duty to be optimistic about the future, uh, which those old kind of codified belief systems would always have encouraged us to have, either through their promise of paradise or whatever it is, or moral reward through behaviours. But I think just rank optimism that, you know, things are going to work out better. And I love the way you've kind of uh, looked at what happened 100 years ago and what the what the kind of result of that is today. I hope that in 100 years time, those who come after us are actually not using technology in certain ways. And then they are using more of it in different ways to help them and to help them manage the anxiety. So for yourself, James, how do you navigate this pretty tricky but also exciting world that we live in? Well, I'm to a certain extent, I have the benefit of currently living on an island in the middle of nowhere in off the coast of British Columbia in Canada. But what's interesting is that in many ways that doesn't actually, although one might think so, mitigate the effects of anxiety because we're so connected. All of my work happens online and all this, all of these things. So I think it is about limiting the role of technology. So I try not to have technological devices or phones in my bedroom when I'm asleep at night. I try to make sure we try to make sure that we eat all our meals as family, that we, you know, spend time with our son, you know, in, in ways that have nothing to do with technology. We limit his exposure to technology. I'm kind of making it sound as though technology is the major driver of this. And yet the fact is that I do believe it intermediates so many of our experiences that mitigating the role of technology in your life helps to bring you back to a sense of nature. I also am forced to, whether I like to or not, do a lot of gardening, dog walking, and all of these things that have no technological mediation in them at all. And I think that also helps. I think that's a wonderful picture that you've drawn of um of balancing the demands of your work, of modern life, and of technology, but also the enjoyment of it, because you and I can speak now because of technology, and we actually keep in touch with each other through Facebook. I see you doing your lumberjack bit. I'm pretty envious. But then on the other hand, so last night, I, I've started kayaking, and I've joined a kayaking club. It terrifies me. I think that might be a, a separate episode of my anxiety around kayaking. But we were out on a beautiful summer's evening on the Isis, which is what the Thames is called when it passes through Oxford, paddling away, uh, watching the little ducks float by and the swans. And when I came back, and we had to do, unfortunately, we had to do capsize drills, which meant that I spent a lot of time in the cold water upside down. But as I was having my shower, I thought to myself, wow, because I was thinking I was going to prepare for this this podcast. Age of anxiety. Ooh, okay. I was a little scared being upside down in my kayak. But actually out there in the world, I can forget about it for the evening. I was with a gang of lovely people and this community thing that you mentioned. You know, it is so important just to hang out with people. We had a barbecue afterwards. We were just chatting about kayaks and watching the sun go down. And it was absolutely blissful. And I thought, age of anxiety, what's that? I don't care about it for now. I think that's right. I think, you know, the it's, and again, I've written about this and I'm going to be talking about this next week is, and I think is it Spinoza has a wonderful phrase, natura natura, and nature doing what nature does. And, you know, we shouldn't really forget that or nature acting as nature, you know, and it's, it's so important to us because we are part of that. And in a sense, this kind of 
binary approach where things, which, you know, by the way, of course, we all understand computers as they stand at the moment, although it may not be the case in the future, are built on binary switches. That is their essence. Things are either one thing or another. That is how processes work, right? It's one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one. And as you say, our experience is just far more plural than that, far more mad than that, you know, and in a sense, that's what literature, art, music is trying to capture. That's the, you know, kind of bottling that, that, that lightning, if you like, is what we all experience. And I suppose the best artists among us can express so well. Well, James Wood, that's a really fantastic point to end our conversation on the age of anxiety, which has taken us to nature does what nature does, and we are part of nature. James Wood, thank you very much. Thank you. That was James Wood, also known by his author name, J.W. Wood. This episode was recorded in June, so the talk at McGill that James mentions that he is about to give has already happened. You can find links to some of the things we talked about, as well as photos and credits on the show notes page. You can use the bit.ly short link, bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, forward slash anxiety advantage, or go to my website, tigerspirit.co.uk, and click through to the anxiety advantage. Now, would you like to share your story? Today, we've taken a big picture view of anxiety across time and with a literary and philosophical perspective. In other episodes, we have a range of different perspectives on anxiety. I speak about performance anxiety with opera singer and writer Jane Kamak. And with financial advisor Peter Ditchburn, we talk about financial anxiety in uncertain times. Subscribe or follow this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, and these episodes will appear in your pod listening app as soon as they are published. I'm keen to share stories from people who have found ways to live positively with anxiety. It would be amazingly helpful for me and also our listeners to hear from you if you have a story about transforming anxiety for good or how you have discovered ways to thrive in your life. If you'd like to share your story, please email me at anxietyadvantage.uk at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. I need to say this. I'm not an expert on anxiety. I have no medical or therapy type qualifications. I'm a writer and like many people, I have struggled with anxiety. My purpose in these podcasts is to explore with curiosity how these very human feelings affect all our lives. Views expressed by my guests are entirely their own and do not represent my views. These podcasts come out of my personal experience and perspective, and I do not claim to speak for everyone who may be living with anxiety. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only. If you are affected by anything in these podcasts, please seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified professional. Are there any aspects of anxiety you would like us to explore? Today, we looked at digital life and the age of anxiety. What other manifestations of anxiety do you feel we could explore in these podcasts? Drop me a line with your ideas and let's see if we can unpack some of them in future episodes. You can email me at anxietyadvantage.uk at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's free 
New episodes will then pop into your podcast listening app as soon as they are published. I'm Yang Mei Ui. The website link again is bit.ly forward slash anxiety advantage. If you want to find the show notes page and other episodes, or go to my website, tigerspirit.co.uk and click through to the anxiety advantage. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram where I am at tigerspirituk. There is also a dedicated Anxiety Advantage Twitter account, at Anxiety Thriver. Or you can simply Google the podcast, The Anxiety Advantage, and my name, Yang Mei Ui. Thank you for listening, and see you again soon.